0: Good morning everyone, it's good to have all of you here and be here and share with you. And uh, We're thinking about marriage this morning, as Mark said. Um, Last week we thought about our priority for the year, being distinctive, what it means to be holy in the modern world. And today our new sermon series is really going to look at areas in which it is hard to be distinctive because of the pressures that society puts on us. So the series is called Sex, Marriage and Singleness. There's going to be 10 sermons um, in the series. Two on marriage, two on sex, two on singleness, two on homosexuality, one on family and one on abortion. So we're going to take a deep dive into all of those topics. So we're thinking about marriage today. I'm conscious that many of you are single um, but later on in the series we'll be focusing two sermons on singleness and seeing what the Bible has to say about that. So that's really our approach. What does the Bible has to say, have to say to us about these topics and how can it help us live them out in our day and, a- day and age? Because it is hard to be distinctive. Uh, there is immense pressure, I think, in UK society because it's so permissive and so hyper It's hard to be pure in these areas. And also, we're gonna go through them even though they might be a bit difficult. We might think it's a bit embarrassing to talk about topics like sex in church, but the Bible mentions all of these things. And so we shouldn't shy away from teaching what the Bible says about them. So we're gonna start off sermon one of 10, uh, marriage. And the way we're gonna approach marriage, we're gonna look at marriage is from, marriage is for, and marriage is. That's how we're going to approach it. So first of all, who is marriage from? Like, who thought up marriage and designed it and organised it and gave it to be a human way of life? In other words, is it from God or is it from society? Does it have the authority of God, this is how you should live, or is it just a cultural construct that we can kind of change around or ignore as we please? Well it is from God. And that's clear from our passage that we read from Genesis 2, which is really the foundational passage in the Bible on the God-given institution of marriage. Verses 22 and 24 say this. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Note the word wife that there's in God's, in the narrator's mind and in God's mind, this is, this is husband, wife, this is marriage. God brings the woman to the man. God planned and designed it to be like this. Marriage is from him. And Jesus reinforces that in the New Testament. He really reinforces that marriage is from God, not from us by going back to Genesis and quoting from Genesis as the authoritative text on marriage. So we see that in Matthew 19, four to six, when he's questioned about marriage. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, the man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let no one separate. No, what God has joined together, this is from God, it's his institution. It's his, on his authority there is marriage. Christopher Ash points out that marriage is given in the double sense of given and non-negotiable and also given as a gift. So marriage is given to humans by God in these two senses, it's non-negotiable It's marriage as God defines it, but it's also a wonderful thing. It's a gift that God has given to human beings. So marriage is from God. Humans may try to change it. Humans may try to redefine it. But God gave it at creation, right at the beginning. So it's outside of any cultural system, as it were. We we can't just say, oh no, it's a cultural thing. It's a creation ordinance. It's part of God's, order of creation. And so as a God-given design initiative, divine initiative I should say, designed by God, we should not seek to change it or alter it or redefine it. Now of course, as um, highlighted by Mark earlier in the service, the way marriages and weddings happen around the world vary enormously. Um, my wife Claire worked in Albania for two years, and I think what marriages were about a week long in Albania, weren't they? Just stretched out. Um, And um, from culture to culture, it's all kind of different traditions and so on. But the institution of marriage is from God as part of his creation order. So marriage is from God, but what's it for? Well, first of all, marriage is for procreation. In Genesis chapter 1, after God has created male and female, in his image, he blesses them and he says, be fruitful and increase in number. So his design for marriage is that children are born into a secure and committed family unit of marriage. That's how he wants it to be. As our heavenly father, he commits to loving us unconditionally and sacrificially And that gives us, as his children, great stability and security. And he wants us to love our children in the same way. And marriage is the stable unit that helps us do that. His design is that this this thing called marriage that he's made, that's the basic building block of secure and stable (coughs) society. Some married couples, sadly, aren't able to have children. That doesn't make their marriages inferior or second class. They are still a family unit and they are still vital to stable society. But if there are children, God wants them with a mum and dad who love each other, who have promised by covenant to love each other, come what may, and he wants them to love their children in the commitment of marriage. So marriage is for procreation. And then marriage is for sex. God has given marriage for sex. The right and only place for sex, according to God, is within marriage. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to increase in number because they were married. They could have sex in the covenant intimacy of marriage. That's the only they were allowed it. In Genesis 2, 24, we see two descriptors of marriage, united and one flesh. That's how marriage is described. What do they mean? Well, they refer to a few things, actually. Um, they refer to uh, the, making uh, a family, a new family. They refer to the, the closeness, the togetherness, the oneness, the unity, harmony. Synthesis of marriage. They also point out the the giving of yourself to the other, that the making someone else the priority, and they refer to the counterbalancing um, of each other's strengths and weaknesses. But they also refer to sexual union. That's very much part of marriage. God designed and proclaimed that sex is part of marriage and sex is only for marriage. And this is affirmed in the New Testament, in passages such as 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. They lived in a very sexually immoral society Um, it was beginning to affect them as a church. So he reminds them, no, sex is not outside of marriage, just for one woman, one man, who are married to each other. It's also really important to notice that the Bible affirms the joy of sex. Um, In fact, the Bible has a whole book to celebrate the joy of sex, the Song of Songs, all about love and romance and sexual desire, Um, It's a gift that God wants us to enjoy. We'll think more about what the Bible has to say about sex in in, uh, the forthcoming sermons that will happen later on in the series. God has also given marriage for social and sexual order. So marriage and sex restricted to only those who are married, that brings order to society and stability. When a family unit is formed without marriage and when there's sex outside of marriage, that brings chaos and disorder to communities, individuals and societies. It brings sexually transmitted diseases, sexual abuse, misogyny, unwanted pregnancy and abortion, absent fathers, uncared-for children, adultery, rape, pornography, loneliness, confusion, psychological damage, objectification of women, all these things happen when we say, oh, no, it's fine, just have sex however you want, with whoever you want, whenever you want. Society kind of starts to disintegrate in those respects. But God wants to protect us from all of those things. So he puts (coughs) boundaries around sex and designs marriage as the basic building block of society, which then promotes stability and security. For children and also for adults. So, we've looked at marriage is from, how it's, it's given to humans by God. We've looked at marriage is for, the purpose of marriage. Now, let's think about marriage is. What is marriage according to the Bible? Well, firstly, marriage is covenantal, i.e., marriage is built on agreement and commitment. Marriage is all about a covenant of love. Of course, marriage is about romantic love, isn't it? Absolutely, and sexual love completely. But it's also about covenantal love. Love that says, I promise to keep loving you, even when things get hard, even when it's really difficult, even with illness and uh, hardly any money and all those things, I'm going to persist in loving you. Um, And and that's the promise that a married couple make to each other when they marry. They they agree on, they commit to this covenant. They say, I'm going to love you, come what may. I'm going to keep loving you, come what may. And and that covenant is really outlined in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. So the woman is taken out of the side of the man to signify that she will walk with him side by side through life, equal in dignity and value and significance. And the marriage covenant is a commitment to walking side by side through life, not splitting, not deviating, not with one more dominant than the other. I'm going to be with you by your side through anything that life throws at us. And then verse 24 says, This is why a man lives his, leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This, this covenant of marriage is about leaving parents, uniting together, and then committing to never be split apart by anyone, even by parents. It's, it's this completely new and independent family unit joined by covenant. And this covenant is lifelong. It's, it's for the whole duration of the married couple's lives together. And Malachi and um, Proverbs, chapter Malachi 2.14 and Proverbs 2.17, condemn those who are unfaithful to the covenant of marriage and who ignore the covenant of marriage that they've made and who break the promises that they've made to their marriage partners. Jesus, as we've seen, says in Matthew 19:6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So it's a commitment to be together, unseparated, for the, as, as, long as, as long as you live. In um, marriage, husband and wife may change a lot. Circumstances may change dramatically, but their covenant promises don't as Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote to a young married couple, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. I'll just read that again. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. What he meant was, you love each other, absolutely. But to keep that love going through the whole duration of marriage, through difficulties, it's going to be the covenant of marriage that, that keeps that love going that allows you to keep loving each other and persisting. Marriage is covenantal. And then marriage is public. Now of course the the sexual union is private but the marriage covenant ceremony is a public event. The, The promises that the couple make to each other are not made in private. They're witnessed by friends and family and officials and clergy. And this is, yes, so that they can celebrate with them, absolutely, but also so that they can help them when troubles come, so that they can pray for them, so that the members who are public are there, uh, the the church family and the the blood family can say, we're affirming your marriage together, we'll help you through it, we'll support you, because we value what you're doing. And in the Bible we see many examples of the public marriage ceremony, Uh, Psalm 45 is entitled A Wedding Song and describes this public union of marriage. In John 2, Jesus and many others were invited to uh, a marriage at Cana. And the parable of the ten bridesmaids in Matthew 25 relies on the ceremony being public. It's not a private thing hidden away. It's a a public declaration of, of their love for each other and their promise to persist at that love. Christopher Ash makes the point that, and I quote, unmarried cohabitations labour under an ambiguity about what exactly the man and the woman have agreed to. Often there are different understandings between the two of them. But when a man and a woman marry, there is no such uncertainty. And there's not, is there? Because they they say in public, they face each other, and and they go through the vows and they outline the covenant and they're saying we agree and everyone witnesses that this is what marriage is about and this is what we're promising no ambiguity whatsoever it's 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 public it's acknowledged and then marriage is universal it's god's gift for the whole of society not just for christians so marriage in genesis 2 is part of god's creation mandate it's his plan for the entire human race, no matter what culture you're from, what country you're from, what background you're from, God wants men and women—one man, one woman—to be married. It's because He wants to bring blessing and benefit to every community, um, to every society, to every nation. It's because, as I've said, it's the build, building block of stable civilization. In Matthew 24:38, Jesus comments that marriage is ever present through human history and will continue into the future up until when he returns. It's this universal thing. But we must note, whilst we acknowledge that it's universal, that believers must only marry other <coughs> believers. Christians must only marry Christians, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And then marriage is heterosexual. So God deliberately designed marriage to be between male and female. Adam, male, is given Eve, female. And Eve is described as a suitable helper. Um, We see that in, in this passage in Genesis chapter 2, 18 to 20. Now, the Hebrew word helper, so Eve is given to Adam as a helper, that word, the Hebrew word that's used in this instance is in the Old Testament almost always used of either military help or God helping Israel. God is repeatedly called Israel's helper. So the term certainly doesn't imply inferiority or weakness. Um, It actually describes the opposite. It describes one who is needed. Adam can't Do it without Eve. He can't do what God's commanded him to do. He can't function in the way that God has designed creation to be. He he needs it to fulfill the creation mandate. But Eve isn't just a helper, she is a suitable helper. And the Hebrew word suitable is a compound word which means as opposite him or like against him. It's a funny word. It contains these, these two things. Eve is a suitable helper because she's human. She is as Adam. She is like Adam. But she is also a suitable helper because she is female. She is opposite to him. She is different from him. And together, as a unit, they can fulfill God's creation command. Alone, they can't. They need their differences. Think of it like this. I have down here um, some of my favourite pairs of trainers, my Jordans, okay. They're very cool because they have glow-in-the-dark soles. I kid you not, they glow-in-the-dark, it's awesome. Anyway, um, so what do you notice about these apart from they've got glow-in-the-dark soles? Well, I didn't really notice this before, but thinking about marriage and thinking about shoes as an illustration of, of the the suitable helper phrase. I noticed that they are the same but different, right? They are are both absolutely shoes or trainers, absolutely, and they have the same design and design pattern and colour scheme and everything, don't they? And yet they're different. They're opposite. There's a left and a right. They're opposite to each other, and they need to be like that, enabled to to fulfil the function for which they were designed. Um, If I had two left... Jordan's, I could sort of use them, but they wouldn't allow me to walk very well or certainly play basketball very well. But together, as the same and yet opposite, they function as they were designed to function. And it's the same with marriage. God designed Adam and Eve, and therefore male and female, to be the same, both human, yet different opposites in a sense, male and female. Um, he, He could have, God could have described Eve as just helper, like here's another human being, but he doesn't. He says suitable helper, which, because he wants to convey both her similarity as human and her difference as female. So the biological, emotional, psychological and spiritual differences between male and female are deliberately designed by God for marriage. They are essential. That's why marriage is heterosexual, not homosexual. It's a union of other. It's a joining of opposite. It's a diversity which complements. It's a togetherness that can achieve more. It's a contrast that's needed. It's a difference that is designed. One Bible commentator observes that the deliberately designed difference and oppositeness of male and female reflects the many other opposites that complement each other in creation. He says, and I quote, notice that Genesis 1 ripples with a creative display of diversity that complements each other, God and creation light and darkness, earth and sky, sun and moon, land and sea, humans and animals. And at the pinnacle of God's creation stands the masterpiece of male and female. Creation is not uniform, but a beautiful display of differences interacting with each other. The coming together of male and female in marital and sexual union is the height of creation's astonishing union of otherness. So marriage is heterosexual, it's a union of otherness and Jesus again affirms this in Matthew 19, 4-6 when Jesus is clarifying and explaining what marriage is. He clearly describes the union of a man and a woman by quoting Genesis two twenty four: a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh now, he could have left it there and said, there you go, it's a man and a wife. But he also quotes Genesis 1.27. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? So by quoting from that verse in addition to the other verse, he emphasises that marriage is heterosexual. It's by design. That's how God meant it to be. On purpose, this union of others otherness this difference that complements and then marriage is monogamous it's be, to be between one man and one woman in our genesis 2 passage there is of course just one man and one woman which sets the pattern uh, the unalterable pattern of marriage and the seventh commandment protects that pattern jesus affirms that in matthew 19 by saying no longer two but one flesh. He's clearly got in his head marriage is two, male and female. Polygamy exists in the Old Testament, even amongst God's people. Let's not pretend it doesn't, it does, as well as amongst pagan people, but it's recorded only, never affirmed. That's crucial. The narrator records it, but it's never affirmed. And actually, whenever the narrator mentions polygamy, they always mention the destructive results of polygamy, to show the reader what happens when we deviate from God's plan into cultural norms. For example, in the Jacob narrative in Genesis 29 and 30. And sadly, lots of other um, polygamous marriages have got into huge problems and caused great um, trouble and sadness. Marriage is monogamous. And then marriage is affected by sin. So marriage begins in Genesis 2, um, instituted by God, but it's quickly spoilt by sin in Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3.16, we see that strife becomes attached to marriage. The woman's desires, we're told, would be contrary to her husband's. She would desire to subvert and control him. And the the husband would often sinfully and wrongfully attempt to rule over his wife in a damaging way and that happens throughout the rest of Genesis. Women desire power and control over their husband which is met by a response of manipulation and control in return and, and, and we see that in marriage after marriage sadly. Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 12 and 16. Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis 27. Jacob and Rachel and Leah in Genesis 29. Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38 and so on and so on. We just read through Genesis and we see that sin has spoiled marriage. Sin affected marriage negatively. So now, because of sin, although marriage is full of joy and is wonderfully satisfying, it is also full of difficulty and struggle. Pastor Charles Swindle compares marriage to home DIY, he says, it takes more work than you planned, it costs more than you expected, it's messier than you anticipated, and it requires greater determination than you thought. <laughs> Which is kind of funny, but kind of true, isn't it? Because we can't go into marriage and um, just think it's all going to be fine and perfect, because we're realists, we know about sin, don't we? Sin affects everything, including marriage. The fall has made human hearts hard and self-centered. And so now marriage takes a lot of work and effort. So because of sin, we expect in marriage there to be arguments and fallouts and familiarity breeding contempt, we expect that. But because of grace, we work hard to forgive, to love, to draw close, to not take our marriage partners for granted, to keep the flame of love alive, and so on and so on. We expect the negativity of sin through God's grace. We work hard to overcome that. And then marriage is a metaphor. This is the last point. Um, I've saved the best till last. Marriage is a metaphor. It's a metaphor of Christ and the church. The Bible uses marriage imagery to describe to us and to help us understand the nature of Christ's relationship with the church. So for example, in both the Old and the New Testaments, for example, Isaiah 54 verses five and six, "For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is His name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth the lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit so this 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 metaphor this analogy of of god as the husband and and israel as his wife and then that continues in the new testament ephesians 5:31 and 32 for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh this is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. So Paul says, this is marriage, but but there's a mystery here. It's pointing to something greater. It's pointing to Christ and the church. The church, Christ's bride, has been united to Christ by a marriage covenant, the new covenant, right? And it's a covenant of love. The, The church is loved sacrificially by Christ. It's the strongest, highest, noblest, most awesome form of love. That's the basis for human marriage and that's how Jesus loves his church. Paul calls human marriage a mystery because it conceals and partially reveals the nature of this relationship that Christ has and the church. Human marriage points beyond itself, to Jesus the bridegroom, to the church his bride. So we can look at human marriage and we can learn. Um, So we look at human marriage and we, we realize that Jesus loves his church, he's faithful to her, he's bound himself to her in covenant, he sacrifices himself for her, he's promised never to leave or forsake her, come what may. He's united to her as long as he lives, which is forever. Just as human marriage is is a union of other, male and female, becoming one, we become one with Christ. It's a union with other, of other. The divine is united to the human. That's the nature of our relationship and he dwells in us by his spirit. As Mark mentioned, the Bible starts and finishes with marriage and both marriages originate with God. So as we've seen, God designs and creates and gives marriage in Genesis 2.24. And then we travel through the whole Bible and we see lots of examples of human marriage. And sadly, many of them are flawed and corrupted by sin. But as we've seen, we also see in both the Old and New Testaments, this language of marriage being used for God and his people. And, and that gets much more specific as we enter the New Testament and then it's there that we learn, our oh, marriage is a metaphor that points to Christ and his church. And then, at the very end of the Bible, the Bible finishes with a joyful wedding in Revelation 19.7. Uh, but there's other passage that referred to it as well. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. After a, a very long engagement, so to speak with lots of struggles on the bride's part, there's one final and forever union where Jesus will be close to and with and loving his people forever. Obviously, there's nothing sexual or romantic about that. It's this higher form of love. It's this self-giving, sacrificial commitment type love that makes up the marriage union or the metaphor of the marriage union of Christ and his people. So as I finish... I want to say to you, will you be part of that future marriage, that future wedding? Will you be united to Christ by repentant faith? There is no greater relationship that you can enter into. All earthly marriages are temporary. They'll end one day and they point forwards to the ultimate and permanent and forever relationship of Jesus and his beloved bride. And the Bible really says, look, you are invited to this wedding feast. Jesus loves you so much, he wants to be close to you forever. How will you respond? Will you repent of your sin, turn away from it, stop being married to your sin, and come to Christ and trust in him and trust that he makes promises to you and he'll keep them and he'll keep you forever. And he'll keep you even through death. And he'll keep you by his side. He'll walk with you forever through eternity. That's the invitation that he gives. The question is, will you respond to that invitation? Thank you.